Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm recording this episode on the 1st of January 2020, so it seems timely to consider the big economic issues facing us at the beginning of this new decade. I'll cover these issues in more depth with guests in future episodes, but to start off the year, I thought I'd give you my initial views on the issues. To me, the big economic issues are 1. The possibility of secular stagnation, characterised by sluggish economies, low wages growth, low inflation and ultra-low interest rates. 2. Digital disruption and the emergence of surveillance capitalism. And 3. Climate change. I will speak about each of these big issues in turn. Note that I didn't mention geopolitical instability and its potential impact. That's because, in my view, geopolitical events are just too difficult to forecast. I don't mean to say that they're unimportant. US-China tensions could always worsen again and the trade war could get hot again. The Middle East is perpetually a tinderbox. Iran is threatening Saudi Arabia and the US has sent additional forces to the kingdom in response. Turkey could quit NATO and become an ally of Russia's. Geopolitical issues could certainly shock world markets and damage business and consumer confidence, threatening economic growth. It's very likely a geopolitical shock will rattle world markets over the next decade, but you'd need a crystal ball to say what that shock would be exactly. Now, let's turn to the three big issues I've identified. First, let us consider secular stagnation. This concept has been brought back to life by Larry Summers, former US Treasury Secretary under President Clinton and a former economic advisor to President Obama. Summers gave an excellent speech on the issue to the Peterson Institute for International Economics earlier this year. I'll include a link to the YouTube video in the show notes. Secular stagnation is the thesis that we've entered a new prolonged low growth period in which there is a dearth of real capital investment and job creation opportunities. So we end up with a combination of sluggish real economies with low wages growth and low inflation. We also have low interest rates and high asset prices, as people and businesses increasingly invest in financial assets and real estate, rather than consuming goods and services or investing in new plant and equipment. There are a lot of moving parts to examine here, so we'll aim to return to the issue of low interest rates in a future episode. We owe the original secular stagnation concept to the famous US economist of the first half of the 20th century, Professor Elvin Hansen of Harvard. Along with Paul Samuelson, Hansen popularised Keynesianism in the US in the 1940s. He was concerned that at the end of World War II, as the US government cut back its spending, which was temporarily elevated to great heights during wartime, the US economy would enter a prolonged slump, so-called secular stagnation. It's secular because it isn't a temporary cyclical phenomenon. Hansen was worried there would be insufficient demand to keep the US economy humming along. Hansen's fears turned out to be misplaced, owing to pent-up demand from U.S. consumers who went without during wartime. Also, 
Returning GIs married and started families and gave us the baby boom. Another contemporary US economist, in addition to Larry Summers' warning of a new type of secular stagnation, is George Mason University's Professor Tyler Cowan. Like Robert Gordon, who wrote the 2016 epic, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, Cohen is concerned we are now in a period of very low productivity growth. The tech companies have been ultra-successful, but arguably many of their innovations have been trivial and aren't driving the economy forward and stimulating new large-scale capital investment and job creation. Is the secular stagnation thesis correct? The US economy has enjoyed an economic expansion since mid-2009, but the average growth rate has been lower than in previous expansions. Regarding other advanced economies, much of Europe and Japan have performed poorly since the financial crisis of 2008-09. If there is anything to the secular stagnation phenomenon, it is only really an advanced economy phenomenon. Emerging economies such as China and India, which continue to expand at high growth rates, lifting millions out of poverty, cannot be said to be suffering from secular stagnation. Summers recognises this and, in his Peterson Institute speech, is clear that secular stagnation is a malady of the advanced economies, which don't have as many opportunities for new capital investment as the emerging economies. Larry Summers is very convincing in his presentation of his secular stagnation hypothesis, but it has proved very controversial. Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz has been highly critical, for example. In a thinly veiled attack on Larry Summers, Stiglitz wrote in 2018, Those responsible for managing the 2008 recovery, the same individuals bearing culpability for the under-regulation of the economy in its pre-crisis days, to whom President Barack Obama inexplicably turned to fix what they had helped break, found the idea of secular stagnation attractive because it helped explain their failures to achieve a quick, robust recovery. I'm unsure who else Stiglitz had in mind, but Larry Summers is clearly one of the same individuals he mentions. Stiglitz notes the US economy has responded to the stimulus provided by the Trump tax cut, which has boosted economic growth and lowered unemployment. The US unemployment rate, now at 3.5%, is the lowest it's been in 50 years. While secular stagnation may be a controversial thesis, one thing we can say for sure is that, broadly speaking, Advanced economies have had unremarkable and sometimes precarious recoveries from the financial crisis. We will need to wait and see whether there is any change from the pattern of unremarkable low growth accompanied by low wages growth and ultra-low interest rates which we have seen over the last decade. In late 2018, there were some predictions, including from Dr. Doom, Nouriel Roubini, of a perfect storm for the US and global economy in 2020. But that now appears less likely owing to recent positive GDP data from the US and also because there has been a de-escalation of the US-China trade war. I should note that one element of the secular stagnation story is low productivity growth. That of course could change if digital disruption, particularly artificial intelligence, AI, 
and automation lead to greater investment in new plant and equipment and a productivity surge in coming decades. Of course, there are predictions that AI and automation, particularly driverless vehicles, could throw a lot of people out of work, including millions of truck drivers. The ultimate impacts are almost impossible to forecast, however. Historical experience with the Industrial Revolution and the widespread adoption of new information technology by business in the 1990s suggests that new jobs we can't anticipate will be generated as old jobs are lost. Some workers will be displaced, no doubt, but new jobs will be created and consumers will benefit from new goods and services we can't yet imagine. Think of how Uber and Airbnb have improved our lives in ways we never expected 10 years ago. I really like Joshua Gans and Andrew Lee's summary of the potential implications of AI and automation in their 2019 book, Innovation Plus Equality, How to Create a Future That Is More Star Trek Than Terminator. It's published by MIT Press and I can highly recommend it. Both Gans and Lee are brilliant Australian economists. Gans is originally from Brisbane, where I'm broadcasting from, and Lee is now a member of the Australian Parliament. He spent some time as an advisor in the Australian Treasury in late 2000s, where we were briefly colleagues. On forecasting the impacts of technological change, Gans and Lee write, One of the hardest things to know about technological change is the way it might create new job opportunities. When we replaced human lift operators with automatic elevators, it suddenly became more affordable to build skyscrapers, creating thousands more openings for construction workers. When we replaced horses with cars, our city streets stopped being filled with manure, which was not only good for public health, but also for street vendors and open-air restaurants. Gans and Lee go on to cast doubt on some of the apocalyptic predictions, such as how 40% of jobs are at risk from AI and automation, by noting that some of the jobs that these studies identify, such as accounting and marketing jobs, have been fast-growing in recent years. And as other researchers have identified, it's very plausible that AI and automation will provide new ways for humans to work alongside computers and machines. That said, there's no doubt we're in for a lot of disruption and it's likely to be disruption that has a profound impact on business and productivity. It's likely to be a lot different from the disruption of the last decade, which clearly provided a lot of benefits to consumers who are spending hours each day on social media and YouTube, but which didn't appear to boost productivity growth. Another aspect of digital disruption that I consider important as we enter the 2020s is the rise of so-called surveillance capitalism, as Shoshana Zuboff of Harvard Business School calls it. Her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, is another of my favourites from 2019. Google, Facebook, Amazon and the other tech giants are collecting a mountain of data on every one of us and they are using it to predict our behaviour and what we might buy so it can identify us to its customers and sell them ads aimed specifically at us. We all have had the experience of Googling a product and then constantly seeing ads for it over the next few days. It is incredible how cheaply we have sold our privacy, trading it for convenience and entertainment. 
And now we're allowing devices from these companies such as Google Nest into our homes to eavesdrop on us, collecting data while they wait for us to issue commands, to summon up information, to turn the lights on or off, or to adjust the air conditioning. The big tech companies have arguably become too powerful, contributing to rising inequality in the advanced economies, as well as facilitating the polarisation of our societies via social media filter bubbles. They are arguably doing substantial harm to our societies while paying relatively low rates of tax. They are big targets for populist measures and I expect a regulatory crackdown on these companies over the next decade. Indeed, we have started to see some changes here in Australia, but the proposed measures from the government don't appear that tough. The government is providing $27 million for a new digital disruption division in our competition regulator, the ACCC. But the government's also relying a lot on self-regulation by the industry. In Australia, we know from our experience with media advertising that self-regulation usually isn't that effective. In 2018, the European Union brought in the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, but it's been criticised for not being strong enough. On the 26th of December, the Financial Times' editorial board observed, GDPR is deficient in several respects. Most companies have complied with the tick-box nature of its demands. Far fewer appear to have internalised its spirit. With responsibility split between 28 national regulators, enforcement was always going to be patchy, if not ineffectual. The fact that some big tech companies pay more worldwide in fines than taxes seems to indicate that they regard flouting the law as simply a routine cost of doing business. Another major piece of regulation internationally, which takes effect today on 1st of January 2020, is the California Consumer Privacy Act, which requires tech companies to disclose what they're doing with your personal data and to seek your permission to sell it to third parties. We'll need to wait and see what its ultimate impact is, but some commentators are sceptical. For instance, Kim Lyons, weekend editor of The Verge, has observed... Just like the GDPR, it's not totally clear what it means to be compliant with the CCPA. To summarise, we should expect the debate over surveillance capitalism to continue in the 2020s. I suspect we will need to experiment with a variety of approaches before we work out the optimal regulatory framework. My final big issue for the 2020s is climate change. I should preface these comments by noting we need to be careful not to read too much into recent weather conditions. After all, in Australia, for example, we've always had droughts and bushfires. That said, the evidence does continue to accumulate regarding the impacts and potentially catastrophic risks arising from climate change. In October last year, IMF researchers wrote on the IMF blog that global warming has become a clear and present threat. Actions and commitments to date have fallen short. I sense public opinion is moving in favour of a concerted global response to climate change and politicians may well have to respond strongly in the 2020s. While for the last three decades, measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions have been insufficient at a global level, 
We expect advanced economy leaders will be under strong pressure to adopt substantial measures sometime in the next decade. Of course, that would probably require a change of administration in the US and changes in governments in other countries around the world. Ideally, we'd see the adoption of a global carbon price and an emissions trading scheme, rather than each country doing its own thing, or rather not doing its own thing and free-riding on the efforts of other countries. We need all major economies to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels and to cut emissions. There's little point in, say, Australia achieving substantial cuts to emissions and damaging our industrial base if China and India keep growing and building coal-fired power stations as they have been. This is a global problem and we need a globally coordinated solution. I've covered the economics of responding to climate change briefly on Economics Explained. As Professor John Quiggan of the University of Queensland explained in my interview with him last November, a carbon pricing scheme is more cost-effective than other measures. This is because market participants are minimising costs after taking into account the social cost of greenhouse gas emissions. They will find the most cost-effective way to reduce emissions. Other types of policies, such as so-called direct action policies, involving, say, subsidies for revegetation, they can end up having a high cost of mitigation per tonne of CO2 equivalent emissions compared with an emissions trading scheme. Also consider that, say, renewable energy subsidies can lead to perverse outcomes. They could promote too much renewable energy investment in the short term and jeopardise the reliability of the electricity system, as the viability of fossil fuel power generators is undermined. Arguably, we are starting to see this problem in Australia. A reinvigorated push to respond to climate change brings big risks for economies which are more dependent on fossil fuels such as Australia's. Australia still has substantial coal-fired power generation. We are the world's biggest coal exporter and coal royalties are highly valuable to our state treasuries. We have many regional communities which are highly dependent on coal mining or on a coal-fired power station, which will eventually need to be shut down. Hence, we will need well-designed structural adjustment policies, including assistance for retraining and relocation in some cases, so workers don't end up long-term unemployed, at risk of depression and other mental health problems. Luckily, in my state of Queensland here in Australia, the bulk of coal we produce is coking coal, which is used in steel production and which should always be in demand. The minority of coal produced in Queensland is thermal coal, the type burned in coal-fired power stations. So while there will likely be an adverse shock to Queensland regions as the world, including even China eventually, moves away from thermal coal, the shock to our economy won't be as great as it could have been. That said, depending on how much public opinion on the need for action on climate change shifts in the 2020s, we may see economies having to undergo a large amount of structural change in a short period of time. So there you have it. That was my review of the big economic issues to look out for over the next decade. We intend to cover them closely here on Economics Explained, so please continue to listen to the program. 
The issues I've discussed today are ones that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I'm sure I don't have all the answers. I'm very interested in your views, so please feel free to get in touch with me with any questions and comments on this episode or previous episodes. You can email me at gene.tunny at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next week.